Good morning, St. Clair. It is good to be with you this morning. I understand there's also some meeting place folks with us this morning, so we welcome you here. Um, if it's your first time here, um, I know Easter weekend can be a time where uh, new people enter in, and we would just say you are welcomed, and we're so thankful to have you here um, on this Good Friday with us. Um, it is truly uh, a blessing to to celebrate with, with one another and to reflect on what Christ has done. I understand this is a holiday and there's many things that you could be doing with your free time, but choosing to be here is the best choice that you could make because we get to celebrate and remember what our Savior has done. My name is Will Albert and I'm one of the interns here at St. Clair. Um, and typically interns don't get to preach on Good Friday. So I don't know if I got Dave and Matt's like vintage coffee order just the way they like it or like stack the chairs perfectly on the Germania, but I've done something. So here I am. You get to have me this morning. <laughs> um, and as I was thinking about this task of preaching on Good Friday, the pinnacle of our Christian faith, I felt like there were so many thoughts. There was so much swirling around in my head and I was like, I've got to just... There's so much. How do I even pick one thing? I mean, the list is exhaustive. And as my friend Rob Miller says, our words fail us um, at times like these when we try to explain uh, correctly. But there was one thing that I felt the Spirit highlighting to me um, as I was looking over the scripture that was just read for us in Mark chapter 15. And specifically, it was just this one little detail which turns into this massive concept. It was verse 38, Mark 15, 38. And as was read, it says this, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, for those of you maybe that have grown up in church, you kind of know where I'm going with this already. As I read those words, something echoes in your mind of this idea of a veil of the veil, of this curtain, as my translation described it, being torn. Maybe for others of you, you're coming in here for the first time and you have no idea what that means or what that even signifies. And I want to say this morning that that's okay. Whether you've heard this story 60 times or you've heard it for the first time this morning, there's something in here for each and every one of us because that's the beauty of Scripture. It speaks to us because it's alive and it's living. And so most simply what I want to do this morning is I want to walk us through the biblical story, but I want to answer three really simple questions. The first question I want to look at is what function did the veil serve? What function did the veil serve? Why did we even need it in the first place? The second question I want to look at is why did Jesus tear the veil? What was so significant that the gospel writers felt that they needed to include this detail in Mark chapter 15? And the third question I want to look at is, how do we live now that the veil has been torn for us? How does this change the way we see God or relate to God now that it's, the veil has been torn, as scripture says? But before we can answer any of these questions, like I said, we have to understand the story. When we understand the story that we're a part of, we better understand who we are and how we function. And so we need to go all the way back to the very beginning of Scripture, to the beginning 
of the Bible in the book of Genesis. And we see at the beginning of the Bible, we see God in his vastness and majesty and power is beyond space and time. He is outside of the world as we know it. And he creates and speaks things into being. He creates the universe that we know. He creates the plants, the animals, everything that we have in this universe. And lastly, he creates us. He forms us out of the clay and breathes his spirit into us. He breathes his ruah, his spirit, his life, as the Hebrew says, into us, each and every one of us. And at that moment, when God created humanity, all was right with the world. You see, we were created in the image of God. We were created in the likeness of God, meaning that we were like God and we had our identity established. We knew who we were and we had a purpose to fill the earth and to subdue it and to take care of it. Or another way of saying that would be to steward it. And at this point in history, all was right with the world. But unfortunately, this state of peace, this state of shalom, as they say, was not maintained. You see, sin entered the world and temptation caused Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, to sin. What they did was they ate of the tree of knowledge, the fruit of good and evil, and they tried to become like God. The irony in all of this is that they were already like God. They were already created in his image. But the funny thing about temptation is it twists the truth and causes us to believe something that is not true. And so when Adam and Eve decided to disobey God, to stamp their mark of independence, that they were independent, that they could be like God, we see that the world was fragmented, that it became broken and fractured. And sin made Adam and Eve less fully human. They were not able to function as they were designed. That is what sin does. It makes us less human. We're not able to function in the way that we were created. And so we see that Adam and Eve were no longer able to relate to the world around them. They were no longer able to relate to people around them And most importantly, they were no longer able to relate to God the Father in the way that they once had. You see, in the beginning, when everything was complete, when everything was peaceful, there was a freedom between God and man. Man was able to enter into God's presence. And when I say man, I mean humans. Humans, both man and woman, were able to enter into God's presence freely, and there was no separation. But when sin entered and brokenness entered, God in his holiness was no longer able to fully enter into relationship with man. That sin drove a wedge between us and God. What's interesting about this point of the story is that At this moment, God in his vastness and his power could have said, I tried with these humans and they have failed me. So I'm going to create a new life form and I'm going to invest in them and start over. That's one possible option that God could have done. But we see that that is not the nature or the characteristic of who God is. We see that God is a God of redemption. And God does not give up on us when we make mistakes. We see that time and time again throughout the scriptures, that even when we fail and even when we make mistakes, God does not give up on us. 
But yet we see there's this tension point. We see that God is holy. Another way of saying that is God is set apart. And we also see that God loves his people deeply, but yet his people are sinful. They're unclean. And so how does a holy God, a set-apart God, enter into relationship with a sinful people? How does a holy God enter into communion with us as sinners? You see, God, in his wisdom, had a plan to restore all things. And one of the ways in which he did that was called the temple. God instituted the temple to be with his people. And as he created the temple, the temple served its function and its role to allow God to dwell in the midst of his people. There are many details, and the scriptures go at length to talk about the various details of the temple. But most specifically for our importance today and this morning, I want to highlight the innermost room. You see, in the temple, let's use the Germania center for an example. In the temple, there would be a general area where the priest would enter, and then there would be a secret room that was curtained off, if you will. And that secret room was called the Holy of Holies. And in that room was the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant contained the presence of the living God. Maybe you're having a hard time pinpointing that reference Maybe you've seen um, the Indiana Jones movies, The Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's the only pop cultural reference I could think of of the Ark of the Covenant. So if you haven't seen that movie, you need to go watch it. And then maybe you'll understand what it looks like. But essentially, it's this gold box. And God's presence resides in it. And so we see that God's presence is in this innermost room. And it's sectioned off from the rest of the temple by this veil or this curtain. Now, this curtain, it's not your grandmother's drapes. This is a thick curtain, okay? This is like the historian's account that this was actually four inches thick. And the temple was 30 cubits high from the floor to the ceiling. That's approximately 45 feet tall. Imagine a 45-foot-tall curtain that's four inches thick. This veil functioned to keep God's presence contained. You see, if it wasn't for this veil, God's presence would consume the people around him. It would consume the Israelites. But God was so desperately longing to be in relationship with his people that he allowed this veil to... contain his presence so that he could still be holy, but also be with his people. You tracking with me so far? Yes, yes? Okay, good. So we've established the temple, but we also see that at one day during the calendar year, there was a man called the high priest. And the high priest had the specific role on the day of atonement. This was one day during the year he would enter into the Holy of Holies, this sacred space where nobody would enter. And as he entered into this Holy of Holies, this sacred space, he would sacrifice a goat and he would take the blood which symbolized life and he would have it in his hands in a bowl and he would dip his hands in the bowl and he would sprinkle it. 
on top of the Ark of the Covenant. You see, what this symbolized was the high priest was atoning for the sins of Israel. He was atoning for the sins of the camp and for the sins of the people for the entire year. It's interesting that the word atonement literally means to make as one. And so to us, this may seem far removed or foreign because we don't understand the temple or the sacrificial system. But what this did was for that moment, it allowed the people to be in communion and connection with God the Father again. It atoned. It made the people and God as one as it once was back in the beginning, as I referenced earlier. The pragmatist in the room may, may say, this seems like a good solution. God, you've outdone yourself. You have figured it out. This is, you know, someone goes on my behalf. They sacrifice for me. They make my relationship right. And then I get to go on and live my life. Now, while it's a suitable solution, we see that, once again, God is not interested in mediocrity or a simple solution. God wants covenant relationship, and he wants full access to us. He doesn't just want partial access to us. He wants full access. And we realize that while the temple served its purpose, it was limited in its scope because, for one, the sacrifice had to be made every year. This was a continual thing that they had to lay down before the Lord. It was not an eternal sacrifice. It was something that had to be done And not only that, there wasn't a personal connection between the people of God and God himself. It was a high priest who would go on behalf of the people. And so there was that disconnect of personal relationship. We see the limitations of it while it served its purpose. And so God, as I mentioned earlier, was not interested in temporary. And he had a plan to restore all things to himself. But this plan was a costly plan. And it meant that he would have to give up something. He would have to give up his one and only son, whose name is Jesus Christ. You see, God realized that his son, Jesus, who was seated at his right hand in heaven, would have to do something miraculous in order for him to be reunited with his people fully once more. Jesus Christ, the son of God, he humbled himself And he entered this world as a man, as a human. He walked this earth just like we are walking this earth. And he took on a human form. He lived perfectly, more perfect than anyone ever could or ever will. And he took on the sins of the world, sins that he he was undeserving to take, punishment that he did not deserve. And he took our transgressions, our iniquities, all the pain and the suffering, all of it. He took everything and he nailed it to the cross as was read. And in that moment when Jesus did, he died on the cross and he did that amazing act for us. We see that the scripture talks about that the veil was torn. But this was symbolic because this wasn't just a display of power. This wasn't just God saying, I'm still God. I've got authority, although he very well could have done that. There was so much more going on. You see, what happened when Jesus tore the veil was significant. 
You see, that signified that there was no longer a need for a high priest to go before God and sacrifice on our behalf because Jesus Christ himself had become the true high priest. He had become the perfect sacrifice and he had become this eternal sacrifice, this everlasting sacrifice. And so now we see the veil was torn and our relationship was free once more. And this is good news. If you leave here this morning with nothing else and you forget every word that I have said, remember that Christ died for your sins and he tore the veil so that you could have access to your Father in heaven, to the Creator. And that is a beautiful thing that we get to share this morning. But I believe the story continues and there is more to be said about what God has done and what Jesus has done we see that the tearing of the veil did not only allow us access to the Father, but what it did was allow the Holy Spirit to come and to fill our hearts. The Apostle Paul describes it in this way in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. He says, For do you not know that you are the temple of God, or we are the temple of God, and the Holy Spirit fills each and every one of us? You see, the beauty of what God did and what Jesus did is not only did he restore our relationship with the Father, but he allowed the Father to come live with us. And now we get to commune with the Father on a daily basis, on a personal level. Something that was separated is now so close and so near. And so I want to say also that is good news this morning, that we have the Holy Spirit to guide us and to walk with us as we live life together. And there's so much that I could say, and there's so much that we could celebrate. I mean, goodness is inherently in the name Good Friday. But I also realize that this goodness, this freedom, comes at a cost. This theme, this idea of redemption that I've been mentioning this morning, it's interesting because the word redemption or the word redeem, we get that from Latin, and it literally means to buy back. We were bought back at a price, but we see that price was very heavy. The ransom was too high, and we could not pay it ourselves. And so as we reflect this morning, we pause and we take a moment to recognize that God did for us and Jesus did for us specifically what we could not do for ourselves. He paid a price that we could not pay and he sacrificed himself so that we could be free. I'm about to close, um, but before I do so, I just wanted to say um, a few last words. Maybe this morning you're hearing these words and nothing I have said is new. Nothing that I have said is, is new. You've heard this story before. This seems like old news. There's nothing new. But yet there's this sense that God is drawing you and God is calling you back to himself. Maybe you feel as though you need to recommit an area of your life that you have been afraid or unwilling to this morning. And if that's you, I would encourage you to do so. Maybe on the other hand, you're saying, I've never heard the story of Christ. I didn't know 
that I was separated from the Father and I needed a Savior. I didn't know these things, but now I know that my Savior has done for me what I could not do for myself. And you're feeling that sense that there's something that you need to do to respond, that you want to know more about Jesus, that you want to learn who this man was and what he did. Whether you've heard it before or it's your first time, I would love nothing more than to pray with you. I know we're still going to ask everyone to silently leave at the end of service, but if you feel as though you need to respond and you would like prayer or just someone to answer questions or just to talk with you, um, that would be my greatest joy to do that this morning. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to wait at the top of the stairs, um, and if you would, you would like prayer or just someone to talk to, um, I would be more than happy to do that. Be blessed this morning.